Welcome to Global Visions, the Brown Journal of World Affairs podcast. My name is Katie Goldenberg, and I'm the editorial podcast coordinator and an associate editor for the Brown Journal of World Affairs, a biannual journal of international relations and foreign policy produced at Brown University's Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs. The podcast seeks to explore international affairs and policy issues related to the content of our upcoming issue of the journal via a series of interviews with distinguished academics, policymakers, and activists. We are honored to be hosting our next guest of the podcast today, cultural anthropologist and University of Albany professor Elise Andaya. Professor Andaya has maintained an esteemed academic career focusing on medical and gender anthropology, with research examining reproductive health care, gender, and health policy in the United States and Cuba. She previously served on the Research Development Committee for the American Anthropological Association, and her book, Conceiving Cuba, Reproduction, Women, and the State in the Post-Soviet Era, explores how the collapse of the Soviet Union affected families, gender, and reproduction in Cuba. Professor Andaya is currently working on a second book, examining the effects of service sector work and health policy on pregnant minority service workers in New York City, as well as research on how COVID-19 affects reproductive health disparities in New York. Professor Andaya, thank you for joining us. To start off, can you tell us a little bit about your background in health policy research and what generated your interest in Cuba as a regional research focus? I'm actually an anthropologist and not, I don't consider myself an actual health policy researcher, but like many anthropologists who are medical anthropologists, I focus on the way policy is implemented on the ground and how it's experienced by people on the ground. So, and one of the things that we often find is this, the gap between policy goals and its actual effects on the ground. So that was my interest in Cuba. And I actually came to Cuba sort of a very um, roundabout way. I When I went to graduate school, I was interested in, knew I was interested in reproduction, and I was very interested in genetic testing, prenatal genetic testing, but I wanted to do the research in a place where there was not like part of the global north, which is where most of the studies have been done, and Cuba was a place that had a universal prenatal genetic testing program for sickle cell anemia under the argument that all Cubans, no matter how they look, probably have some African ancestry, so you, unlike the U.S., you can't just say you look like you might have African ancestry, so you should get tested. So that was how I ended up going to Cuba for my pre-dissertation research. But um, when I got there, I found that it was harder to get access than I had expected. All the genetic testing programs were run sort of at high, at hospitals and required sort of high level authorization. And given the always tense relationship between the United States and Cuba, People were under, you know, they were happy to have me tour and that kind of thing, but they were understandably a little concerned about what I was going to do if I was there for a year and asking questions. And it just became obvious that that wasn't going to pan out in the time frame I needed. And so I was living then in um, Havana, uh, Havana and, um, and I met through a neighbor, our local family doctor, and she was the one who kind of welcomed me into the clinic. At the time, Cuba had, Havana had a, a doctor on every block. So she took care of our block and she welcomed me into the clinic and allowed me to come and observe. And this was where all of the ground level prenatal, routine prenatal care was done. And so being there every day gave me an opportunity that I would never have imagined to actually see 
how Cuba's excellent reproductive health statistics are actually produced on the ground and what people are doing and how doctors are implementing these health um, policies. So that was sort of the roundabout way by which I arrived at the project that became my book, Conceiving Cuba. So I actually wanted to explore some of that ethnographic research that you completed for your book, um, Conceiving Cuba. And so through your interactions with Cuban healthcare communities, have you found that doctors and medical professionals play a particular role in socialism's ideology and moral economy? And what were state narratives of socialist medicine during the Soviet period? So, I mean, it's hard to overstate the incredible symbolic importance of doctors all throughout the revolution. So pre-revolution, the revolution was 1959, but before that, Havana was um, known as part of the playground of, of the Caribbean. Uh, Cuba in general is a highly stratified society. And in 1953, Fidel Castro, who later led the revolutionaries to victory, um, was imprisoned for his part in a failed uprising. And during his defense, his self-defense, he pointed explicitly to health and specifically to um, to the numbers of poor women and poor and black Cuban women and children who died. And so that right, like from the very beginning that of the revolutionary sort of impetus, the health, health in general, but also the health of mothers and babies was kind of symbolically super important. And so by, by the beginning of the revolution, by the 60s, there was huge effort to train doctors so large numbers of doctors, um, it was, the medical schools were open to, they were made free. So they, so people who could never have become doctors before flooded into the, the medical system. And as part of their training and also in exchange for this free education, they were required to go into two years of service in underserved areas, either in urban areas or in rural places. So this is how many doctors ended up in places in the mountains that had never had a biomedical doctor before. And so these doctors, from the, they were kind of like the symbols of the revolutionary state, the morality of the state, in especially in comparison to kind of the inequality um, of the past. And they really, they were expected, I mean, it, and it is still the expectations of doctors are really that they are fully, that they serve the community. So they live in the community that they serve. They're expected to be available 24-7. So during my field research, like if I was at dinner at a doctor's house, people would come by and say, oh, my, my kid has a headache or, you know, and so they were really expected to be, um, to, to, to serve the community and in exchange as, as part of this kind of revolutionary solidarity. So they've, doctors have really been seen as kind of a vanguard of the revolution and the uh, important symbol of the moral legitimacy, the, the state that takes care of its people. And they also represent that overseas as part of the medical humanitarianism that the state engages in and, and sending doctors to places that have um, various kinds of disasters. And, and today still the, the, um, the socialist government provides free education to international students who want to come, who qualify and would like to come to, the, uh, to Cuba to study to become a doctor on the proviso that they think of return to their home countries and serve in underserved areas. So these are really, I mean, they really, they really occupy this sort of pride of place in the revolution and, this, and occupy this moral status, it's very important. Very interesting. And I wanted to move a bit into a discussion of the Cuban economy that the healthcare community operated in. In our most recent issue of the journal, we published a section entitled The Dissolution of the Soviet Union, 
which examined the political, economic, and cultural effects of the Soviet Union's collapse on both Eastern Europe and other socialist countries abroad. What did Cuba's economy look like during Soviet subsidization, and what were the immediate economic effects of the Soviet Union's collapse on Cuba? Additionally, what does Cuba's post-Soviet economy look like, and what role did the international community play in shaping it? I, I think it's hard to overstate how, I mean, just what a dramatic collapse happened as a, uh, as a consequence of the collapse of the socialist bloc for Cuba. So in the 1980s, when, um, Cuba was really subsidized substantially by, um, by the Soviet Union, by, um, uh, which subsidized prices for sugar, for example, which was Cuba's main export that was well above what market rates would have been. They provided oil at very low prices and gas. They also received goods from socialist countries. So people tell stories, of course, I wasn't there in the 80s, but um, people tell stories of, you know, of going to supermarkets and all of the cans were in Russian uh, or Slavic languages because they were all goods that were provided as part of this exchange through the socialist bloc. So it was never an affluent country, but it was a second, second world economy, an economy that parallels the first world economy. People had money for leisure activities, there were camping and people took vacations. They could um, sometimes get trips to go to visit places in the Soviet bloc. So it really was a, you know, a, a thriving, if not, you know, super affluent economy. And so the fall of the Soviet Union really laid bare for many Cubans how much their economy had been propped up. One of the things that people told me again and again is that they, they had no idea. They didn't know how, they thought that this was something that Cuba was doing on its own, they had no idea. And so it came as a huge shock when suddenly everything collapsed, that the sugar was no longer being bought, there was no gas, there was no oil. And so it's just one marker of like how substantial that, that was. The average caloric intake in the 80s was estimated to be about 2,800, which is pretty, you know, equivalent to what uh, what is in the United States, for example. And in just three years, in the ninth, by 1993, it had dropped to 1,800 calories. So, um, you know, a loss of almost a third of people's calories. And people who talk about those early years of what they call the special period, um, it was called the special period in the time of peace because the state implemented austerity measures that they only anticipated would happen in the case of siege or war, but they had to do this in case Pizza. And so there were no buses, there were no cars, there were blackouts of like 10, 12, 15 hours long, sometimes days long, which made it impossible to preserve food. People lost huge amounts of weight because, um, because of loss of food, because um, there was no transportation, so people were walking and bicycling everywhere. Um, so it was really a truly terrible time um, for, for Cubans and just a, a loss of um, everything they know in the world had literally collapsed around them. And so as a response to the fact that Cubans were really suffering, the state took some pretty dramatic measures that they had not done before. Um, and one of these was opening up the country to receive remittances um, from family overseas, also opening the country to uh, tourism in a much, much larger way that had been really closed down and also allowing some categories of, um, of private uh, like entrepreneurialism, which was still pretty restricted, not at all as 
expansive as it is now, but was a huge, previously everybody more or less had been employed by the state. And this really dramatically shifted everything because people who had access to remittances usually had access to remittances through family abroad. And the people who had family abroad were largely white Cubans whose family had left the revolution because of political disagreements in the 1960s. So suddenly those people who had been seen as perhaps a little bit, their loyalty was perhaps a little suspect because they had family that had left, were suddenly the ones who had access to what everybody needed, which was money, you know, hard currency. A lot of the goods were available only in American dollars. So if you went to a store and you needed to buy chicken, it wasn't available to you in the currency that you earned and through the state through Cuban pesos. It was only available to you in US dollars. So that made it extraordinarily expensive and meant that only people who, um, who had access to this could, could buy these kinds of things. So it really began um, what we see today, which is the reemergence of class and social and economic stratification that was arranged along lines that were really different. Like previously, there had been stratification, but much less. So the, the difference between the highest earners and the lowest earners were like five to one. And the people who were at that sort of high level were people who are highly educated or, you know, occupied important positions in the Socialist Party. Suddenly you had enormous stratification. So doctors, as one example, make between 20 and $30 a month um, converted into US dollars. But you could have a, tour, a taxi driver or somebody who rents a room in the house making hundreds of dollars a month. And those people might not have any, any higher education. They may have no socialist political connection. So all of the avenues by which people before had kind of risen up in society were sort of overnight almost, felt, or it felt like to Cubans were upside down, were turned upside down. And so we really saw this kind of reemergence of, of class divisions, but also along very different lines than they had been before. So the, to, to today, the post-Soviet economy and, and the international, um, it has been a really difficult time for Cuba. Under Obama, there was an opening for Cuba, and we really saw a move towards, towards re-engagement. Um, the Tampa Bay Rays went to go play there, play in Cuba, and that was the first time in 50 years an American baseball team had ever gone to Cuba. The, the government really started to move towards biotech investment as well as tourism as opening this. But COVID, the two things, Trump administration and COVID, have really um, made the economy really extremely difficult. That um, Trump, under Trump, um, the embargo was tightened significantly. So it's, it's always been one of the most complete embargoes in the world. It is more complete than the embargo we have against North Korea, Iran, Afghanistan, certainly any much more complete than what anyone's suggesting against Russia, even after the invasion of Ukraine. So, it's impossible to get good. It's very difficult or hard to get goods, to get um, the cutoff from financial um, banking systems. Um, so that the closing, the further tightening of the embargo made life already very difficult for Cubans. And then COVID on top of it cut off one of their only streams of hard currency, which was tourism. And so I believe they're starting to come out of it now, but the those two years, two to three years, that, that combination created economic conditions for average everyday Cubans that were 
really, really difficult, mo the most difficult really since, since the special period, which is really ironic because one of the arguments of the Bago has been that it's you know, supporting the, the autonomy of the Cuban populace, but of course it's the Cuban people who suffer the most from you know, the loss of food and supplies and medical supplies. Um, and I think, you know, to, also to add to it, I think we've seen a lot of the economics, yes, people always ask about the recent protests in Cuba. And, you know, from my discussions with my Cuban interlocutors, a lot of that is around economic stressors, is this feeling that there is no, there's no way out and there never will be a better way. And the frustration that's kind of spilling onto the streets as a consequence of that. Yeah, I wanted to get into those, how those economic shifts that you mentioned um, affect social hierarchies. And you touched on this a little bit, but did these changing systems of inequality and avenues for income have effects on gender relations specifically in post-Soviet Cuba? They did. I, I think, so one of the things that was very much commented upon in the 90s and early 2000s was the rise of um, or um, sex workers, but not necessarily sex workers in the way that we might, might think about it as strictly sex transactions for money, but people who would forge relationships with, forge relationships uh, with tourists for goods, for access to things that Cubans couldn't do, like going to ho fancy hotels. Some of them hoped to get married and to be able to leave the country and thereby also send remittances. Um, back to their families. So, so much more, uh, much wider than simply a, a sort of sex for money. Um, that seems to me, and that was very much, it was gendered certainly because uh, women generally were um, in relationships with older men um, from mostly Europe, although many men also um, participated in this economy. That seems to have declined um, as the economy has, um, has improved. I don't see it quite as obviously. Um, but one of the interesting things about is, is the sort of women's participation in the workforce and women have also um, moved into the private economy much more than they were before because it offers um, access to um, additional income that perhaps is higher than what they could garner if they're working in the state system. Very interesting. And I wanted to get back into um, healthcare a bit and look at um, how post-Soviet economic shifts and the measures uh, that you mentioned that were taken by the Cuban state, how that affected Cuban socialist medical practices and some of those moral economies that you mentioned that exist in the Cuban healthcare system. Yeah, I mean, this is so interesting and it actually is not unique to Cuba. Um, social it parallels what has happened for doctors' status in a lot of socialist countries, in Russia, for example, in Ukraine, there are similar, so this is not a unique to Cuba, but the, in, the reshaping of the post-Soviet economy has really created a lot of tensions, I would say, for, for doctors. They still hold tremendous moral status. I mean, when you walk down the street, everybody will greet a doctor. They really seem to be people who, who sacrifice for the community, who have a lot of solidarity for the community, but they are also increasingly aware of the fact that they don't have um, access to the kinds of avenues for material gain that other people can. As doctors, they're not allowed to operate privately. So you don't, 
they are state employees and they're paid through the state, they cannot have like a practice on the side the way that we might have in the United States that might that they could charge in dollars or they could charge, then they're prohibited from doing that because that is seen as a, a conflict of, of interest. And so their opportunity, they can receive remittances, but their opportunities for um, for material gain, uh, you know, or material sort of um, remuneration are much more limited. And it's difficult, you know, as we, I think everybody can imagine if you have spent a lot of time studying to work in the community and to feel that there are people out there who do very little in terms of solidarity, who have not studied and who yet have access to a much, much better lifestyle. And so I don't think, I think for the most part, doctors since they become doctors because they have particular kinds of commitments but that doesn't mean that they don't also want to have a material lifestyle that they feel is commensurate to be able to buy a car or to buy nice clothing or go out to dinner um, and pay for dollars and so I think that that does um, that is kind of a, a that is a tension that will need to be resolved um, as you know among many of the tensions that the, the country is facing. And um, Cuba has seen thousands of these medical professionals serve in um, over 100 countries on international missions. And so can you speak to this Cuban phenomenon of international medical humanitarianism and whether it maintains any connections to shifts in Cuba's post-Soviet economy or global shifts to market economies? I, I see medical humanitarianism as, as firmly situated within socialist, socialist ideas of of internationalism. So for, for the Cubans in particular, but for many socialists, it was never supposed to be just a domestic uh, um, political ideology. The idea was to spread um, socialism and to um, be in solidarity with those who, um, who had less or who were less fortunate to support. You know, Cubans also supported many socialist revolutions for on the, um, Angola, for Angola, for example. So the so medical humanitarianism was seen as part of this broader effort to support um, revolutionary activity, um, socialist activity to support the poor all over the world. And this is, um, so Cuba's always been um, the first on the scene or the first to offer help during disasters. So the US press often tends to focus on economics or perhaps these people are forced to go. But that was never my experience. My experience was that there were economic reasons to go. You got paid more if you went on a humanitarian mission. It was also, um, you also got status for serving on a humanitarian mission, but that's different from being forced to go. Um, so, you know, we all have pressures that um, shape whether or not we decide to do certain things. So, but so, um, there, Cuban doctors were first on the scene or offered help at, um, uh, during the Ebola outbreak, through um, the Haitian um, earthquakes. I mean, they're, they're there everywhere. And um, the one exception, I think, and I think all of the, virtually all of those I would characterize as truly humanitarian, but there was very little economic gain um, to be had other than that kind of, sort of sense of solidarity. The one exception that I would note um, would be the relationship with, um, with Venezuela under um, Hugo Chavez, where um, that relationship was forged right after the fall of the Soviet Union. Cuba was in desperate need of oil in particular. They couldn't run anything because they had no oil or gas. 
So um, what the the um, contract that was that was uh, supply, you know, or, or the agreement, I guess is the way to put it, um, was that Cuba sent hundreds, thousands of doctors to serve in underserved areas in Venezuela in exchange for millions of dollars of subsidized oil, which they desperately needed. So that um, that I do think had, you know, it was part of a, a socialist relationship, but it also had clear economic benefits. It bolstered Chavez's uh, status in his country, and it also um, provided much needed economic um, largesse to, um, to Cuba. So much of your research focuses specifically on reproductive care. Mm -hmm. um, so how did reproductive health care play into socialist ideology and specifically these Cold War and post-Cold War ideological tensions between the U.S. and Cuba? And how does state reproductive care differ in socialist and non-socialist states? So as I, I mentioned, reproductive care or reproductive health has really been symbolically central to the revolution at the very beginning. It was early identified as one of the priority areas for the government. Um, and this has been important because maternal mortality and infant mortality statistics also have huge currency on the international market. Like, so these are, um, these are statistics where, which are overtly compared by, um, by the WHO, for example, and they become some signs of good governance. So one of the things that they would look at to decide whether a country is being well governed or is to look at maternal, maternal um, health statistics and infant mortality statistics. So the fact that Cuba has excellent infant mortality statistics um, they go down virtually every year. They're almost always lower than the United States, as well as all, you know, all of its neighbors. This really became important um, international currency, if you want to put it that way, where they could stake the moral legitimacy of um, the socialist government on the fact that they that their health indicators, and particularly the maternal and infant health indicators, were so good. Um, and it's the only country that I've ever been in where. Uh, the, the data is collected every year, obviously. And within the first week of the new year, big headlines all over the newspapers announcing what that year's mortality rate is. I mean, infant mortality rate, along with, and because it's almost always lower, along with a lot of you know, celebratory rhetoric, if it goes up, which happens very rarely, a lot of discussions about why that might be the case or what could be done better. So, Huge um, domestic importance. Doctors are really held to their numbers. That they, um, if a maternal or infant death occurs, there's a lot of. Um, by contrast with the United States, which has no integrated system for tracking maternal mortality, the reasons for maternal mortality or infant mortality, we don't have a federal panel to investigate these deaths. These are collected, and each case is um, is tracked to try to identify what the cause of death was. So. Um, so yeah, really important internationally and a huge amount of human and financial capital invested into, um, into keeping those numbers good. Um, and I think in terms of, I mean, it's hard to make a division between socialist and non-socialist countries um, because some, some market-driven economies have very good attention to reproductive health. Um, but certainly in comparison to the United States where what we see is a... a at best, a patchwork of healthcare, where 
Um, people fall between the cracks. People don't get routine care. It's not uncommon for people to show up um, to deliver in an emergency room, having only received one or two prenatal care appointments. That is just unthinkable in Cuba. And part of that reason is because family doctors live in the neighborhood. They are responsible for the health of everybody in that neighborhood. So it's not like you have a um, OB who may live X number of miles away from you. They take care of, they do gerontology, they do pediatrics, they do reproductive health, they do everything on the preventative um, care level. And so they know you and they, and because they live in the neighborhood, they know if there's a woman walking around who's pregnant, um, who is not coming to care. And if you don't come to care, they'll come to your house and ask you why you're not coming to care and check. And if there's a reason why you can't, they'll come to your house to make sure everything is okay. Um, and they put a lot of work into the preventative care, you know, those kind of that like nuts and bolts on the ground work that takes a lot of labor, but not a lot of money. Um, and that's mostly what prenatal care is. There's very few times when a test truly makes a difference, but it's just simply making sure that people are eating right, that their blood pressure is not too high, that you're watching for signs, and they do that very well. Um, so it's really hard to imagine somebody falling through the cracks in Cuba, and I think that really contributes to the fact, to you know, why their reproductive health statistics are so good. So to wrap up, and as we look forward to the future of Cuba's economy and healthcare system, do you believe that global market forces are in inherent tension with socialist medical ideology? And are there ways that these two forces can be reconciled? Yeah, <laughs> that's the million dollar question, or maybe in today's inflation, that's like the you know, $42 billion question. But um, I think in terms of getting, getting at it and access in relation to medicine is to think about the fact that some of the arguments in the United States about the astronomical cost of healthcare here is that we do cutting edge medicine, we do lots of technological medicine, there's a lot of research and development that's very expensive and that all contributes to the cost of, um, those are all market driven, but and they all um, contribute to the cost of, uh, of healthcare. But I think it's also clear um, when we look at the statistics that it doesn't provide better care, or rather it provides better care for certain groups of people, people who can, who can pay for boutique medicine, who have access um, for, to drugs, um, that the, you know, these boutique drugs that they may need. Um, and it, so it's very good medicine for some people and very poor care for those who don't have access to those kinds of things. Um, and it's no coincidence that huge amount of R&D money goes into things like the drugs for heart disease and very little goes into diabetes um, because diabetes we know is disproportionately suffered by low-income populations and that diabetes is best managed through prevention and prevention does not drive a profit. So as I was saying that one of the things that Cuba does really well is, um, is prevention, is this idea that you know you can you can improve people's health through things that don't cost a lot of money and that don't generate a lot of profit, but do um, but do actually, um, you know, through just tracking people and, and um, intervening at the local level and, and quickly that you can improve people's health. Um, but I do think that um, they're not as a the, the Cuban social medical system is not as opposed to market forces as it might sound that 
the fact that they focus on prevention and the health of, sort of the population doesn't mean that they don't also do cutting edge medicine. So they have a really vibrant biotech se um, sector. They have multiple COVID vaccines and about 80% of the, uh, their population is vaccinated with their own vaccines. They have they've developed a very effective drug that prevents foot ulceration in diabetics, which we know is one of the reasons why amputation happens. They um, have a lung cancer vaccine that's in, um, in trial. And some of this is um, in trial. Some of them are partnered with US firms in trial. Some of these are actively in export. And so what it shows is that these things can coexist. You can have a vibrant R&D biotech market that it, they are seeking to sell. They're seeking to use this to generate profit so they're not so reliant on things like um, tourism and remittances. But that doesn't necessarily have to come at the expense of having a kind of more social, quote unquote, socialist um, focus on medicine for, for all. All right. Well, that's all the questions we have. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Professor. Thank you so much for having me. It was been great. That concludes this episode of the Global Visions podcast, hosted by the Brown Journal of World Affairs. Thank you for listening, and thank you to Professor Andaya for the opportunity for conversation. Be sure to check out Professor Andaya's book, Conceiving Cuba, Reproduction, Women, and the State in the Post-Soviet Era, which can be found on Amazon. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>